Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Garfinkel. She is Professor of Neuroscience and Psychiatry at the University of Sussex and the Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Her research is focused on the link between interoception and emotion and memory. In 2018, she was selected as one of the 11 researchers on the Nature Index 2018 Rising Stars. Dr. Garfinkel's research focuses on interoception, the ability to sense one's own body, and the link between interoception and the brain. She specifically focuses on the heartbeat and has shown that the heartbeat and perception thereof influences the way people process fear. Her research has furthermore shown that autistic people experience difficulty judging their heartbeat causing anxiety and stress. This research has led to the development of a new therapy technique called interoception directed therapy, which aims to reduce anxiety in autistic individuals. And we're going to focus on all of, on all of these topics today. So Dr. Garfinkel, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Ricardo. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so I guess that my first question has to be, what is interoception, right? Because I guess that most people are not aware of this. Yeah, most people are not aware of this. And also scientists can't actually agree on a definition at the moment. So, oh, really? Um, yeah, it's actually a contentious thing. Um, in 2016, uh, around 100 interception researchers converged on... Um, uh, Oklahoma, uh, where we try to come up with an agreed definition, um, uh, and even that is currently being debated. So essentially, it's different from extraception. So extraception is sensing the outside world. So their senses like vision and touch and hearing, um, whereas interception is sensing internal bodily sensations so mm. that's it in its most simplest form um but the precise definition is still being debated i like sheridan's definition from 1906 which is interoception is the body to brain axis of sensation concerning the state of the internal body and its visceral organs mm -hmm. right uh, so and um what specifically does interoception refer to? Is it about uh, all different body systems that we have and the kinds of, <laughs> I wouldn't call them feelings because feelings is what we experience <laughs> mentally, right? But the kind, yeah. of, the kind of information that we get uh, uh, viscerally from the, the other organs, yeah. right? Or something yeah. like that. Yeah, 100%. So it's from our internal bodily organs. So in the very strict interception sense, it's just internal visceral organs, like yeah. our hearts, gastric sensations. Um, some other researchers have widened it out a little to include respiration, also types of touch that activate a part of the brain called the insula. So slow effective touch, mm -hmm. like gentle caresses um, <laughs> and uh, potentially pain. Um, so it is extended by some researchers to incorporate things that are outside visceral organs, but traditionally it's seen uh, about sensing internal visceral organs such as the heart and gastric. Yeah. 
Uh, and how do we go from uh, the sensations we get from the visceral organs to some higher mental states, let's say, like emotions and memory and things like yeah. that? Because well, our brains and our bodies are intrinsically and dynamically coupled, that signals from our body are represented in neural activity. So our brains actually flashing in time with each heartbeat. And we also have represented in our brain, uh, for example, the slow um, wave of the stomach. And because our feelings, cognitions, emotions, perceptions are guided by neural activity and our neural activity are affected by organs in the body, then you start to see how organs in the body can shape the way we think and the way we feel. And study for int of interception for me is looking at exactly how organs can interface with the brain to guide emotions. And when you are in particular body states, you have particular neural representations. Um, and for me, this is very much the basis of emotion. So emotion is so embodied. So when you feel an emotion strongly, you have changes in your heart rate, you have changes in your skin conductance, you have changes in your blood pressure, and these are represented in the brain. And also sensing these bodily changes guides our emotional experience. So for me, emotion is such an embodied process because it's a sensing of the body changes that guides the, the mm -hmm. feeling state. And yeah. sensing, by sensing I mean feeling your heart pounding, but also the neural representation of that cardiac signal in the brain can influence fear. Mm -hmm. So th this is a very old question in psychology. I mean, uh, people have been trying to understand what emotions are and how they work. And there have been people who suggested that first we feel the emotion and then comes the the physical reaction, let's say, like, for example, the accelerated heartbeat or something like that. And there are other people that say it's the other way around. So, I mean, is it one thing or the other or is it a two-way street and both influence one another? So both definitely influence one another because okay. we are complicated beings and just by having thoughts we can also change our bodies uh well what i'm trying to do is be diplomatic what i actually think okay <laughs> I, okay I, say, say what do you, what you actually think well i feel a bit like i'm i'm stuck in the uh stuck in the 18 1894 <laughs> <'cause> I, <laughs> so i get a bit shy as like a modern day neuroscientist saying what i actually think but actually yeah. i really subscribe to william james um, who very much argued that the, the emotional feeling states arise from sensing bodily changes. Okay. So you don't feel fear and then your heart pounds. Yeah, it's the other, the exactly. other way around. Yeah. Exactly. The feeling of fear arises from sensing the pounding of the heart. And mm -hmm. I really, so despite my attempt to be diplomatic <laughs> initially, I really do think that our emotions arise largely, if not almost exclusively, from sensing these bodily changes. Yeah, but th that also makes sense, right? Because it's basically our brain obtaining information about the internal state of our body and then producing those uh, subjective uh, feelings, right? Yeah, that's exactly what I think. 
yeah, I just get I just get a bit shy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have to be shy here. You you can be completely honest. No one is going to judge you. So <laughs> thank you, <Yeah>. Ricardo. <laughs> okay. So and I mean this 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 then has another aspect to it because our emotions also have a connection with our decision-making systems, yeah. right? And so there's a connection between interoception, emotion, and action. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, and gut instincts, like we can just feel like something is the right decision, um, but not necessarily know why. Uh, and these kinds of instinctive decision-making processes have also been shown to be linked to changes in the body and also your capacity to accurately detect those changes. So mm -hmm. interoceptive processes and these cardiac signals and other signals, uh, they're beautifully informative. So our heart doesn't beat regularly. It has mm -hmm. patterns of um, increased uh, frequency and so acceleration and deacceleration patterns embedded yeah. within it um, and the, these patterns can uh, guide uh, intuitive decision making. Yeah. Okay, so uh, when do processes or mechanisms like uh, memory and cognition uh, come into the picture here in relation yeah. to interoception? So it, they come into the picture in complicated ways because interoception itself is a multi-dimensional and complicated mm -hmm. construct. Yeah. So, um, so decision-making for me is easier to understand than memory. So okay. um, because our decisions can be guided by things feeling right or positive and instinctive and these emotional influences are are guided by bodily states so yeah. the influence of the body on decision making i think is is easier to understand <laughs> memory is harder to understand partly because the effects are so varied so one is you could potentially have state-dependent effects on memory. Like we know that happens. It's a famous experiment um, done in the 70s under the water. So divers who learnt material under the water are more likely to remember the material when under the water again than when they're on land. Um, you could, so that can, that's a context effect on memory. You can also see mild effects of uh, for example, alcohol, like if you learn something from very, very mildly intoxicated, you get these sort of state-dependent effects. You also yeah. get mood-dependent effects on memory. So when you are in one mood, you're more likely to remember it. Um, if you're in the same mood as when you encoded it. So you get these, these contingent effects on memory if the encoding context matches the context that you recall stuff it facilitates memory and the body is potentially like that as well so if your body's in one particular state when you learn something then it may be more accessible and more likely to be remembered if you're then in that same state during recall so you can have and so that's very interoceptive because it's about what body state you're in um, and how that may facilitate content context dependent learning and recall mm -hmm. yeah so you get so these so it's kind of yeah. an association that is established at the level of the brain between uh, bodily state and uh, a particular memory, for example. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. That's right. 
So that's probably the easiest one to understand. And then you get these amazing effects on memory, which are kind of unusual and quite bonkers, but I really like them. <laughs> so I've done, these, I've done these experiments where you time lock the presentation of words, for example. So I'm trying to make you remember a whole load of words. Mm -hmm. And if I, if, I if I time lock these words to present them exactly when your heart is beating or yeah. in between heartbeats, yeah. And then I give you a surprise memory test an hour later. You are more likely to remember the words that you saw in between heartbeats yeah. and more likely to, to forget the ones that happened exactly when your heart was beating. So yeah. this is a sort of interfering effect of the heart on memory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah? That, that, that's all very fascinating, I guess, that most people don't really think about these things when they... Um, think about emotions, right, and where they come from, because we also have these intuition, these dualistic intuitions, right? We tend yeah. to separate the mind from the brain or the body. So when it comes to having an embodied vision of where mental states come from, I guess that yeah. that's really not intuitive for people. Right. It's not, it's not. But the way I see it is you, because you have these dynamic relationships between the heart interfacing with the brain, um, right. your, these, these signals can then be interfering or facilitating of certain types of processes. Mm -hmm. And these cardiac signals are genu uh, generally inhibitory. So yeah. if I gave you a pain stimulus exactly when your heart is beating, then you have less of a pain response. If you see a word exactly when your heart is beating, you're more likely to forget it. So you have this inhibitory property of heartbeats on general stimulus processing that can serve to inhibit certain types of things. Um, and memory is one of them. But one of the potential exceptions to this is fear and fear memory, where these this process can be enhanced by the, the heartbeat. So it also depends on what type of memory you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then we also have to look at probably the different brain structures or brain areas, because, for example, fear is mainly processed by the amygdala and structures like that, right? It's one, so amygdala, you're right, is one of the key structures involved in fear. And amygdala is involved in general salience and other things. But yes, fear is one of the things. Um, mm -hmm. And it is, amygdala is one of the structures that is dynamically related to heartbeats. Mm -hmm. So you do get activation of the amygdala, as well as the prefrontal cortex, insula, and other key areas um, in, in response to the cardiac signal. Uh, and so, yeah, right, there's maybe something about these particular structures that the heartbeat interfaces with that means it can then selectively enhance some types of processing, mm -hmm. such as fear, under some circumstances. Yeah, we will certainly come back to that when we talk about specific mental conditions or mental disorders. Uh, but uh, just to make, a, to establish a bridge to that topic, um, in, uh, in what ways does interoception connect with uh, psychiatry, mental health, and those yeah. kinds of things? Because, and, and again, in so many ways, which I think we're only just starting to kind of scratch the surface of it. Yeah. And I know I'm biased, but I really think that understanding interoception 
and how our body interfaces with our brain and mind is going to open massive avenues and doors and windows and insights into the nature of different psychiatric conditions. So what we know at the moment, I think, is only just starting. Um, mm -hmm. But we do know that there are certain conditions that process interception in different ways. Mm -hmm. And when I say interception, I mean the neural representation of bodily signals, so how bodily signals are expressed in brain. I mean, your perceptual accuracy in detecting bodily sensations. So do you know when your heart beats? Um, uh, are you aware of your hunger and other bodily changes? And you can look at that objectively, so we can test you in the lab to see if we, for example, play you tones in sync and out of sync with your heartbeats, how accurate are you at those tests? Or yeah. we can also just ask you how good you think you are at these tests, and we can look at how good you think you are relative to your actual ability, um, and then we can get insight measures. So we can look at all of these different measures. We can look at brain measures, accuracy measures, subjective reports, and metacognitive insight measures, which is confidence accuracy correspondence. And we can then create an interceptive profile of you to see how good you are on all of these different levels. And then once we've done that, we can see how different psychiatric disorders differ on these different parameters of interception. And what's been shown by my group and also other groups are a number of findings in terms of differences in psychiatric populations. So Victorio Galezi's group has published on this and we're starting to show it in our own work is that people with schizophrenia have reduced interceptive accuracy. Hmm. So they're, they're really not accurate at these cardiac tests, for example. Hmm. Um, you also get these really interesting uh, heart effects and people with schizophrenia where their heart beats very 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 regularly mm. it doesn't have these sort of acceleration and deacceleration patterns about it so there's something different about the nature of the afferent cardiac signal mm. um and um in people with schizophrenia and they're less accurate at detecting it mm -hmm. So, I mean, th there are different things that can be happening here. Yeah. Uh, you are referring to, for example, uh, different uh, heartbeat rates, right? Yeah. So, so it could be the organ itself that mm -hmm. works differently. And so it is transmitting different information to the brain, or it could even be the brain that is reading the same information in different ways, for example. Yeah. Right? So that could also be true. And understanding mm -hmm. and delineating these different ways um, yeah. and these different things is, is what science really needs to start digging into to, to really answer those exact questions. Okay, so we were talking about how we can establish a connection between interoception and psychiatry and mental health. Yeah. So maybe it will be easier for people to understand how we can do that through several examples. Let's talk, for example, about PTSD, because this is something that you've studied, right? And uh, relating to amygdala function, I guess. So could, could you tell us about that? Well, it was actually PTSD that first made me get interested in the role of the heart and interception. So I haven't actually studied 
interoception yet in PTSD people. But what okay. I studied a lot was, um, so I'll start that again, but PTSD was actually what made me get interested in interoception. So I was working um, in America, looking at people with post-traumatic stress disorder, and I was interested in the mechanisms in the brain that gave rise to persistent fear memories and, and persistent fear responses. And um, I was looking at the role of the external context. So why is it if you have PTSD, even if you're in a really safe place, why yeah. do you still feel scared? Mm -hmm. um, and I was looking at the role of context in, in being a moderating influence on um, memories in people who don't have PTSD. So if you're, if you're someone who doesn't have PTSD and you have an ambiguous stimulus that you could have either a negative memory or a positive memory to, um, if you're in a dangerous place, you have a dangerous memory to the object. And if you're in a safe place, you have a safe memory to it. You have um, appropriate context modulation of memory recall if you can have either memory. Whereas PTSD don't have that. They don't have the capacity of the external context to have a moderating influence. So that made me think if they can't use the external context to guide appropriate memories, is there something about the internal context that drives fear responses? And I also noticed that people with PTSD have a really different autonomic profile. So often they're, they're um, they have hyperarousal symptoms where their heart beats very fast, they have high skin conductance response, they have all of these sympathetic um, bodily activations. And I yeah. thought that's got to be relevant, you know. Is there something about these bodily signatures that are interacting with brain which serve as an internal context that drive fear? Mm -hmm. um, and you're absolutely right. Uh, amygdala is one of the key structures that's hyperactive in PTSD. So is the insula, although it's not often talked about. Um, <laughs> and you also have reduced activation in an area of the brain that's often involved in regulation, which is the ventral, medial, prefrontal cortex. And all of these three structures are structures which are ultimately dynamically related to the heart. Mm -hmm. So there is a there is this relationship between those areas implicating PTSD and cardiac signals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and talking about the insula, uh, I mean, there's also a connection between uh, the insular cortex activation and binge drinking, for example, right? And alcoholism. Yeah, and there's a whole load of research which is starting and has been sort of happening for a little while which is looking at the role of craving which is very much also a sort of body-based process and how craving um is potentially an interoceptive process um yeah. that can guide drug-seeking behavior and addiction mm -hmm. yeah but, but uh do you know what if this has something to do with the heart or with uh, some other organ or you don't, you don't know that yet so I don't know that too much. I don't know that personally. I do know yeah. that people are really interested in the insula and in in the role of craving. And you do see insula activation in craving based studies. And insula is a particularly important area for the body because the posterior insula is basically a readout of what is happening in your visceral organs. So mm -hmm. 
your cardiac signal is represented in your posterior insula. And as you get more into the anterior insula, that's more about the conscious awareness of those bodily states. So if you're seeing this in drug-seeking behavior, then potentially it tells us that craving is maybe in part a product of these bodily changes and your sensing of them. Mm -hmm. So this also gives us new insights into how addiction itself more broadly works, right? Yeah, it's, it's opening an exciting new area to pursue. Mm -hmm. In terms of, um, uh, I guess, big, the population I'm mainly working with at the moment are those with autistic spectrum conditions. Mm -hmm. So autistic yeah. individuals are um, individuals with a neurodevelopmental condition where they often find it hard to understand their own emotions and also yeah. the emotions of other people. Yeah. Um, and they also sometimes say that they find it hard to have sort of instinctive decision making. Often they have sort of very rational thoughts um, and rational decision making processes. So maybe they're the impairments in this sort of intuitive decision making and impairments in understanding their own and other people's emotions. Mm -hmm. Maybe that arises in part through impaired interoceptive accuracy. Um, and I'm doing a lot of work with these individuals to see if their interoceptive accuracy is impaired and can we train them to be more interoceptively accurate and will that help them reduce their anxiety and also help them understand their own emotions better. Mm -hmm. But that would have some link with the fact that their brain is not processing the information it receives from the visceral organs properly or or, yeah. or or would it be something to do with how the organs themselves work so you know? we don't know exactly yet but i think it's something about the neural readouts okay of the body and there's some evidence to suggest that's true so mm. if you look at connectivity, brain connectivity analyses in autistic individuals. So there's the, the insula that we talked a lot about. If you do a connectivity analysis, which is basically where we say you put a seed in it, but basically you look at how much the time course of this area is correlated to other areas in the brain. So to what extent are activations um, moving together in uh, with the insula or to what extent is the insula acting more like an island that is it has reduced connectivity to other areas of the brain and in autistic individuals we find reduced connectivity of the insula so it's not talking to the rest of the brain in the same way in autistic individuals in particular it's not communicating with the somatosensory cortex as much um, and there's also not as much crosstalk from anterior to posterior insula and also bilaterally from right and left. So you do have this reduced connectivity. So that's something potentially about the this key area in the brain of the readout of the body. Um, what I guess the way that I see, I view interoception and autism has changed so much. I think as a scientist, it's really interesting when your views change. And this yeah. is the one example where I've done a complete sort of switch in how I see it. So when I first started working with autistic individuals, I saw that I initially thought they didn't understand, they were just really detached from their bodies and they didn't understand their bodies. And I, yeah. I, I sort of conceptualized it more as a detachment. And as I work more with autistic individuals, that might be true for some of them, but for a lot of autistic individuals, 
it's that they're overwhelmed by their bodies. Like they don't have precision into their bodily signals. They're just overwhelmed with noisy, afferent signaling from their bodies. And that sort of overwhelms their brain and their senses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you now, before I move on to the last question, um, have you also done some work on anxiety and depression? I'm asking because depression is on the rise, at least in the West, right? Uh, and a little bit across yeah. the globe. So, I mean, this is a, a mental disorder that people are more and more familiar with. Uh, do you know something? Is there some connection between interoception and depression and anxiety? So I've personally done work on anxiety, but not depression. Okay. But I'll start with depression, because there's some great interoception and depression research out there, which does suggest reduced interoceptive accuracy in depression. Um, so there is a kind of dulling of your connection to the body um, in depression. Uh, and this potentially has implications for appetite loss when people are mm. depressed yeah. or even overeating because you're not in touch with your body when it's hungry or when it's full. So you either forget to eat or you comfort eat and you're not given the cues of when you're full. So altered eating patterns are possibly a result of impaired interoceptive accuracy that happen in depression. And quite a few researchers are showing that you're less able to accurately sense bodily changes when you're depressed. Mm -hmm. So in this case, uh, because we've already mentioned hunger several yeah. times, it has to yeah. do with the hypothalamus, right? That, uh, is, isn't that the structure that processes hunger or yes. am I wrong? Yes, it, 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 it potentially does, but maybe it also interfaces a little with the insula, which is again, I think everything's the insula, like honestly. <laughs> <laughs> it's so embarrassing. Like I think I'm in 1884 and the insula does everything. But um, <laughs> I would argue the insula is also about guiding. Uh, it guides how it guides feeling states based on bodily inputs and mm -hmm. the conscious representation of those. So I would also say that the insula is a key region. The insula is shown to be underactive in depression. Mm -hmm. uh, underactive, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 So let me just ask you one last thing. And again, between about the connection between interoception and psychiatry. So, uh, at what level or levels do you think interoception could give us new insights? For example, do you think that it could help? more with diagnosis or with the, with the development of new kinds of treatments or I mean do, do you do you understand what I'm trying to ask? I do yeah I think so we're running a clinical trial at the moment looking at interceptive training as a treatment for anxiety and yeah. um, and I based on the work that we're doing at the moment it looks like interceptive training may be a promising future treatment for anxiety. Mm. Anxiety can be driven by many things. So I don't want to say like it's a definite cure for anxiety as that anxiety can also be very cognitive. 
So anxiety can take forms where you ruminate and you get caught in repetitive worries and thoughts. But anxiety can also be very embodied with the sort of racing heart and the bodily changes and people with anxiety often become very body focused. Um, so focusing on sort of changes in the body rather than putting their attention to the outside world. Um, and my research shows that anxiety is also associated with interceptive error. So people error. who are anxious, yeah. yeah, error. So people with an anxiety often think they're very good at detecting bodily changes. That's potentially a product of them focusing a lot on themselves. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is sort of a, an inward focusing thing. So they think they have great bodily awareness and precision. But if you actually test people in the lab, anxiety isn't necessarily associated with better accuracy and precision into the body. So if you think you're very good at knowing bodily changes but actually you're not that good then there's a big error score and and that potentially could get misdirected as anxiety symptomatology if your heart is pounding yeah that's being sent to the brain but you're not able to tap into that with precision potentially that can give rise to unaccounted for states that sort of are jittery and help and sort of feed into anxiety so we've been seeing whether we can train people to have better bodily precision. Does that result in a drop in anxiety symptoms? So we train people to be really accurate at knowing when their heart is beating. And that we find if we do this, that we do get drops in anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this happens through a number of routes. One, I think it's just it stops this error score, which I think is a helpful thing in itself. Number two, if your heart is starting to race and you notice it early, then you can do things like take deep breaths, take a moment to try and calm yourself down if you have yeah. early access into that signal. Whereas if you have poor access into that signal, it maybe passes a threshold um, and you it's then too late when you notice that you're already in an anxiety state. So it can help you have early access to your body to help you engage in emotion regulation through deep breaths if you're more accurate at noticing these smaller changes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, however, you don't, if you're anxious, want to be too focused on your body. As I said, that's not a good thing. So with this interceptive training, you need to be able to focus on your body when you need to but most of the time you need to be focused and engaged in the outside world. So you also yeah. need to make sure that this interceptive training isn't making people, again, too bodily focused. Mm -hmm. um, and these, these things, oh, and then the final thing is also about attribution. It's not worrying if yeah. you feel your heart start to race. So panic is often associated with a fear of like, am I having a heart attack? What's wrong with my body? This is terrible, my heart is racing. And they start worrying about it. So yeah. what's so it's no good having good interceptive accuracy if you also then worry about those signals. So you also need to notice these signals, regulate them and not worry about them. Yeah. And I do think if we can do all of those things, we can have good accuracy to reduce error, help you engage in spontaneous regulation, mm -hmm. focus on the outside world and not having an interceptive bias and not worrying about those bodily signals when you detect them, then those are interceptive routes through which anxiety can be reduced.
Mm -hmm. So, but that's at the level of treatment, right? But yeah. uh, can interoception also provide us in the future with new diagnostic tools or, for example, with a new perspective on what mental disorders are and probably uh, having new approaches to them uh, in the... In the uh, in psychiatry or psychology or clinical psychology, for example? I It's a good question. I don't know that there's anything that's necessarily going to be so specific mm -hmm. to different disorders. Yeah. There may be, but what there potentially is is um, transdiagnostic symptoms such as anxiety, which you see in many disorders, such as depressive symptoms, which you see in many disorders, or something like alexithymia, which you also see in many conditions, which is not understanding yeah. your own emotions. Yeah. So these symptoms, which cross many boundaries of different disorders, are associated with different interoceptive profiles. And then it could help isolate that people have these a little. But other than schizophrenia, which is the potentially the only exception. I'm not sure there's anything that specific about different categories which then map onto distinct interoceptive differences that could be used as a diagnostic tool. Okay, great. So, uh, Dr. Garfinkel, let's end the interview here. Uh, just before we go, what are the best places on the internet for people to find your work? Ah, um, <laughs> <laughs> so my, I think I... I have a research gate page where I try to upload a lot of my PDFs on that. Yeah. Uh, and I'll try and update that. So that's probably one of the best places. Um, I also have written an Eon article, which is open access and free for everyone as well. Um, uh, and, oh, Vice magazine just did an awesome uh, thing on interception where they cover a number of our work. Uh, yeah. And that's super accessible. Shayla Love, I think her name is, wrote that, and she's an awesome journalist. So there's there's so much out there now on interoception. Um, so if people are interest, interested in interoception, I recommend not just my work. There's so many brilliant researchers who are writing on this topic um, and look up their work as well. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that, your work in yeah. the description box of the interview so that people can go and check it out. It's very interesting. And Dr. Garfinkel, again, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. And it was a real pleasure to have you on. Oh, it was a pleasure, Ricardo. Thank you so much. Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. Uh, I've been doing a lot of interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields and now I really need your help to keep the channel sustainable and to have it in the long run. So I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. And if you prefer, you also have links to uh, monthly subscriptions on PayPal or a link also to make a one-time big donation or several times big donations on PayPal as well. All of the links are in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, 
PayPal supporters, the main ones, of course, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perurgo Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Janne Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, um, Matthew Whittingbird, Arnold Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Dr. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingarder, Beck, and Newberger Goldstein, and Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Max Bailby, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark. My producers is Arweb, Rosie, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ileolin Osborne, Dr. Ian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, and Luis Caetano. And my executive producer, Michal Rugieski. Thank you for all.